0: Hi, this is Derek Morgan, nine-year NFL vet with the Tennessee Titans, currently managing partner of Kingdom Group, and I'm on the game plan.
1: Many professional athletes leave the game with ambitions of becoming investors in real estate, technology, what have you. But our next guest is a former first-round draft pick and recently retired NFL pro who has found his next purpose in the world of impact investing. We are absolutely thrilled to welcome Derek Morgan, nine-year NFL linebacker with the Tennessee Titans, and now the founder and managing partner of the Kingdom Impact Fund. Derek, thank you so much for joining us on The Game Plan.
0: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah,
2: Derek, it's, it's great to reconnect. We originally met uh, as part of the Athlete Transition U or, you know, a pro football combine, uh, which was a lot about the transition guys are making, you know, specifically NFL players into uh, post-career. And so, You've been doing a lot of amazing things since then, and we're excited to dig in on opportunity zones and the impact investing that you're involved with, amongst other things. Uh, I wanna hit on something specifically as we get started. In your retirement announcement, you said you had a strong inclination going into the 2018 season that this would be my last. Was there a moment during the prior season or the off season where you started to think about planning for life after the game, or did it happen much earlier in your career?
0: Um, It probably happened year one, You know, I was a rookie and ended up tearing my ACL game four. And that was the first time I had really been hurt playing football. And so my mind up into that to that point was all was so fixated on, you know, getting to the NFL and making a a career for myself in the league. I never really thought about anything other anything else other than football. And so when I had to sit down for the rest of that season and going into the offseason, which actually was a lockout it forced me to really like ask tough questions around, you know, what what are my other options outside of football? I think from that moment, I really started to understand the reality that the game is only a temporary thing and that you can't play this game forever. And so once you can't play, what are you going to do? And so I know that, you know, even the, the longest careers in the NFL last 10, 15 years, and you're still in your early to mid 30s. So you have a long runway in front of you. And so for me, that injury really woke me up to the, that reality. I would say that was like the first moment that really kind of jolted me and, and and forced me to understand you know, what I was going to be interested in other than football.
2: Do you feel like a lot of the guys you played with had that same mentality or were you in the, um, the minority with that mindset early on?
0: I would say there's a small minority of guys who get it. I would say if you're like a free agent, bubble r- roster guy you understand it a lot earlier if you're a higher draft pick and you've had nothing but success throughout your career it's hard for you to wake up and really see that um the likelihood of you not being able to play or you know any other you know options for you other than football because you've been kind of smooth sailing so to speak and so sure until you hit that adversity which i call it's a wake up call really you know um until you hit that that wake up call or adversity, you really aren't forced to think about anything other than football, right? If everything's going well for you as as according to to, to your plan, it's just a hard it's a hard thing to kind of like, you know, remove yourself from from that 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 way of life. So, you know, I think guys are understanding more and more earlier in their career that there are other things to do other than play football. We're hoping to see that trend just to continue to uptick as as we go forward, but yeah, man, it's, it's 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 the harsh reality. A lot of guys don't really understand it until it's too late.
2: And you were a first round pick, and but you really had a double down between the ACL injury and then the lockout. So thanks for sharing yeah. that. Yeah,
1: you know, as you have been so active with the players' association, with guiding other players, and I've you know read and heard some of the stuff that you've said. Who were some of the retired players that you looked up to, and who were the guys that you sought advice from? Or, you know, even as you were thinking about life after football, reached out to, who were the guys that you really looked up to?
0: A lot of the guys in my my MBA course, you know, that I went back and got my NBA like year five or six. And there's a lot of retired guys in there, guys like Tequio Spikes, Sean Phillips, Santana Moss, Ryan Mundy. He was in there. He wasn't retired yet. But um, you know, just guys like that. Shoot, even Will Smith from the uh the Saints, you know, I sat next to him every day. And that was a tragedy. This was, this was
2: the University of Miami. Yeah,
0: career, yeah, but, yeah. University yeah. of Miami. So That was a tragedy that we lost Will. And, um, but he, he he had a lot of wisdom in him. But, like, guys like that, you know, I would learn and, and I would kind of pick their brain. And they would tell me, you know, it's it's different on this side. Not that it's a bad thing, but it's just different. So really be strategic about how you set your your life up after football while you're still playing, while you still got that, shield behind you so to speak and so to hear guys like that who were perennial pro bowlers and you know had a well established careers and were very successful in their own right to hear them speaking like hey you know take advantage of it right now it's just a little different you know that also kind of you know resonated with me and so I took that to heart you know and then those guys gave me a lot of good wisdom throughout you know throughout my time there
1: it hasn't even been a year for you at this point but when you think about that transition from leaving the game to what you're doing, you know, today, what was what was some of the, the hardest pieces of that transition, or what was something that maybe you didn't really expect about life on
0: the other side? So this is the thing. I, I retired in July, but like I knew I was done before the season even started. I was just trying to figure out when's the right time to announce this thing. And so, um, I knew this going into the off season, so I kind of vegged out for like three months and you know I didn't work out, I ate whatever I wanted and then, um, like April came around, and you know your nervous system's so used to going back to the swing like to the routine and getting back into the to the rate the weight room and working out and I wasn't doing that, and I was just kind of waking up and like just kind of wandering and. You know, I'm like, All right, I can't keep doing this forever. You know, I got to have some type of purpose in my life. And, so, you know, I really started to seek my purpose through, through prayer, through meditation, through God. And through that process, I started to kind of like wake up to the reality that I had to be very proactive about what my next chapter was going to be. And so the thing that I didn't expect to answer your question was like, I had a lot of different things going on. That I had sprinkled seeds around, but I didn't have a clear definitive purpose or path that I, that I seen me taking um, day one of mm-hmm. retirement. So I think there was like a little bit of like of like an uncomfortable period, you know, for two or three months where it was just like trying to figure it out. And it was like the fear of, man, like, do I want to go and start start a fund and do these real estate projects and, and do all these things? I don't have like the track record or experience as these other guys, you know, in the space. But then I would also look at, you know, the the contrary of that, like of not doing it. I was more afraid of not doing something than actually going out, trying to do something, maybe failing at it, having to pivot and figure it out, as opposed to just like sitting back and not doing anything. So once I kind of got that mentality and I adapted that, I just started taking steps, step, 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 And then, you know, doors just started opening themselves to me. And um really, man, I think God just directed me on the path I'm on now. And that was a lot of steps that I took out of faith when I really didn't know what the, you know, the end result was gonna be. You know, things just started opening up. I think, yeah, I think it's it's a transition for everybody. You know, you could set yourself up as best you can, but there's always gonna be somewhat of a transition because it's a different way of life. And, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, and so now to do something different. Is foreign to some extent. So it's a little bit of an uncomfortable phase you have to go through.
1: So you wrote this amazing essay with the Players' Tribune called My New Purpose, which I highly recommend all of our readers go and check out. And in it, you said, the birth of my son made me realize that football wasn't my identity. It wasn't everything, that it didn't mean that I couldn't love it or give everything I had, but it didn't have to let it define me. And I mean, it's, it's a beautiful sentiment and then on the other side of it, we see a lot of guys that, you know, 10 years after they retire, they still haven't found that purpose. Some of them you see having financial hardship. In your experience, why do you think there is that dichotomy of guys who can't discover that purpose outside of football?
0: Um, because that's where yeah, that's where your identity lies. That's where you think that your value lies is you've been doing something your whole life and you've been conditioned to think that. What you do is who you are. Your performance essentially gives you your value and everybody around you is saying the same thing. And if you put a stake into the conditional love that this game brings you, you are setting yourself up for failure because guys think that the fan love and the the, the media love is just because it's them. It's like, no, it's what you're doing on that field. So if you can't detach yourself from that, it's going to be, it's a, it's a hard process. And I get it because I suffer from it sometimes myself and I've been doing everything and I, in my power to detach myself from that. My wife's like, why don't you always like, why aren't you like the the happiest to always take pictures and interact with fans? And I'm just like, well, would they be talking to me if I didn't play for the Tennessee Titans? And she's like, well, you got a point there. But I'm like, you know, I I'm cordial, but it's like, at the same time, I can't invest everything that I have in, in my my identity into what this game says I am. And so if you don't find things that you're good at outside of football or things that give you passion and things that you like outside of football, you're always going to be clinging to that because that's essentially what you were. And yeah. for me, I have seen guys that that held on to that and it's like, You know, you see guys still posting highlight tapes, you know, 10, 15 years after they retired. And I'm just like, you know, that's cool. But like, you got to let that go. People kept asking me, like, how you feel about the Titans, you know, this year? And, you know, they're they're in the (laughs) AFC championship. And I was like, man, you know what? At first, I did feel some type of way. I was like, damn, y'all going to wait till I lead to get to the championship (laughs) (laughs) game? You know what I'm saying? I could have did that last year. But then when I really took a step back and realized and took some time to process it, I was like, you know what? When I retired, I let everything that came with the game go the good and the bad. So the injuries that come with it, the pain waking up every day, you know, the defeats and the playoffs and the championships and the wins and the success. And I I let all of that go. So that one for me, That was a moment in time where I said, you know what? I'm detaching myself. That is, you know, I'm closing that chapter. I'm starting a new one and had to be very intentional about that. And I think a lot of guys, it's it's hard to do that because imagine I'm telling you, if you're an expert in something and I'm all of a sudden telling you, hey, I know that you, you know, did this for the first 30 years of your life, but now you got to find something else to do. That's a hard thing because you're an expert in that you're only 0.01% of the population can can do what you do. And that made you significant. Now it's like, Hey, go figure something else out. And that's a very foreign territory that you enter into. So if you don't adequately prepare yourself for that, it gets very uncomfortable. And I think a lot of guys, they suffer from depression and, you know, these suicidal thoughts and, and financial woes and and you throw on some, some brain trauma in that mix. And it's a perfect yeah. cocktail for all the things that you see guys go through uh, in the negative way. So it's a, it's a complex thing, man. But I think guys, you've seen more examples of guys transitioning well, though.
2: Yeah. And that's actually something we hit on with a lot of our guests. And it's something Caleb preaches through his ATU program, which is those three pillars of competition, daily routine, and team. Right. And, and that's like it's it's all three of those pieces of your identity are gone like overnight. And so mm-hmm. especially if you're not in a situation where at home you've got things buttoned up or or, or any sense of self outside of the sport you play. Mm-hmm. It's really challenging. And we just had a guest on uh, his name's Patrick Ion. He's an MLS veteran, and he's actually dedicated his whole post career towards education for parents of athletes because his, he's fine. You know, this happens as young as age four, age five, where Kids find their self-worth in the sport that they play because they see the adoration they get from their parents when they do something well on the soccer field, you know? And, Mm -hmm. And so he's really focused on how can we actually make sure, you know, one, we're keeping fun in sport, especially at a young age, but two, not have our identities be so tied to performance. Like, can we liberate ourselves from that? Because there's still an opportunity to succeed, to perform at a high level, where it doesn't have to be your complete identity, w- would you agree with that sentiment?
0: I, I absolutely agree with it. It's just, it's super hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard to do, man. Like, you know, in a society that tells you, you are what you do, and you know, if you get paid for what you do, and but uh, it's just hard, I man. I think what you hit on three pillars. What was it? Routine. Routine competition. competition and team, that's profound. Cause I think, yeah, I mean, if, if you can't replicate that in some other way, whew, I mean, yeah, I didn't think about that. I'm I'm thinking about what I'm doing now in the real estate world, and I essentially have all three of those 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 staples and those pillars. You have a you form a good team around you. I got a really good team that I can talk. I talk to every day. I mean, they're calling me right now, I can't talk, but it's like <laughs> I talk to them every day. And it's like, you know, we, we're we in a competition. You know, we we locked up some land and some acreage and we're trying to put together a project and there's some opposition and resistance and, you know, there's that competition. Other people maybe want to come get the land and it's like, nah, we, we got the land. And so it's, it's a competition and, you know, that routine is like, you know, I, I woke up at five o'clock this morning and worked out and spent some time with my kids and developed that routine. So I think yeah. we have it as athletes, we have it. It's just... How can we apply it to another area of life? Because we have the intangibles, right? And so I think, you know, that is that's a profound statement that Caleb made. I, I ain't never thought about it like that.
2: Yeah, I think this is a, a great transition to talk about what you're doing now. And I think for our listeners, they probably have a varying understanding of what opportunity zones are. So I think it would be great to kind of talk about that a little bit. These opportunity zones, they came about. Via a tax bill that was passed at the end of 2017. It was one of those rare things where both sides of the aisle actually agreed on something because <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, it's it's a, a powerful tool that uh, has the ability to really enhance lower income regions, but then also uh, provide some tax benefits. So talk a little bit just about opportunity zones in general. you know, obviously our listeners can, can dig in and do their own research, but you know, how you were drawn to that. Cause the timing's really unique too, cause this was all happening and still is just as you were retiring and thinking about, so this brand new thing, you know, you're, you're wrapping up mm-hmm. your career and you've,
0: you know, really dug in and seized that opportunity. So let's yeah. transition into that. Um, it's God's timing. That's what I, what I always boil it down to because as I was transitioning, I, I've heard about Opportunity Zones, like at the end of my my last year in 2018, people kept sending me articles. And I'm like, wow, this sounds great. And then when I really start to dig into it, I'm like, oh, wait. So the people, the neighborhoods in which are Opportunity Zones, they really can't participate in this program because they don't have what's called a capital gain. So if right. you sell a stock or a, or a bond or a real estate property, you have what's called capital gains that you can reinvest into these communities. And so I was like, well, that seems kind of unfair, you know, to me. But the more and more I dug into it, I was like, well, on the flip side of that, it is a great opportunity to get capital from the private markets into these markets, you know, like a Coatesville where I'm from, the, to care about these underserved markets. I'm from Coatesville, Pennsylvania, and the whole city's an opportunity zone. So when I found that out, I was like, Oh, OK, well, I've been doing things in the city of Coastville, like on the philanthropic side, but they haven't really moved the needle economically. And for me, I'm like, OK, well, we got to start thinking more bigger than football camps and back to school drives and donating facilities. Like people are still waking up in poverty, going to sleep in poverty. How can we change this? When I found out that my hometown was an opportunity zone, We started going back, you know, to to Coatesville, like late May, early June was our first trip. We went back. We're like, hey, can we revitalize a community center and put like an incubator or an accelerator in there and have some jobs uh, and skills training? And then the more people we talked to from city council to nonprofits to the school district, the plan started to evolve. And so, you know, from from where I was at in in my process of retiring, I'm like, well, shoot, now's a perfect time to kind of retire but then point the light to what we're doing in a place like Coatesville, Pennsylvania. So by the time, like I just told you not too long ago, by the time, you know, three or four months went by, we had 22 acres, we have 22 acres under contract right now. And we're putting together a plan to address some of the issues in in these cities like Coatesville, from education to food deserts, to jobs, training, all these different things. And so that's currently what I do day to day. And we're also in other cities like Nashville, Atlanta and Birmingham. But really, it's from my background in, in impact investing and wanting to understand what my money was doing and making sure that it aligned with my values. I didn't want to be invested in private prisons and in big tobacco and fossil fuels and all those things like that doesn't align with my values so I started to really be uh, hands-on with my finances, and understanding where my dollar went. Did it go to, you know, something like affordable housing, or did it go to support minority entrepreneurs or environmentally friendly companies? So, like that, to me, is what matters. And so, when we talk about opportunity zones and you know this whole bigger picture, is essentially what we're trying to do with Kingdom, is magnify and scale what i was doing individually right but do it at a larger scale use group economics get players you know uh, involved get other types of you know government agencies involved nonprofits you know foundations and create change at a larger scale for people who really care about social impact there's a way to do it through investing and that's the approach that we've been taking the past 6 months and so that's what I, you know, that's what I wake up and do every day. That's
1: great. So you, you talked a little bit about the real estate component of it, but impact investing is, is you know, really pretty broad. And then I know you yeah. said that the double bottom line impact of of having both the financial return, which obviously, you, you know, you want to make sure that your capital goes a long way. But then also the, the, you know, doing good and measuring how well you're doing in those communities. I'm sure it's got to be a tough balancing act, right? When you see some opportunities that maybe are really good investments, but don't have as big of an impact and the flip side, you see something yeah. that maybe is a little bit closer to the philanthropy side, maybe doesn't make that great of an investment. On your end, how do you balance those two sides of the coin?
0: It's easy for me, man. If something comes in my email and it's a high rise condo or, or a luxury hotel, it's pass, 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 pass. And I get a lot of that, you know? So it's easy when you understand who you are and what you wanna do, it makes it so much easier to field opportunities and to say, this is for us, this is not for us. And when you look at the impact investments and those things, people subconsciously think, oh, well, it's on the philanthropic side, you're not going to get a good return. That's not the case. Sometimes it is the case, but a lot of times it's not. Now, where it gets fun is, the, the fun part is getting all the capital together in a creative way to make the investment work. So it may take straight equity and debt, but then we might need some public subsidies or some tax abatements or some foundation funding and some catalytic capital, like all these things to make a very creative capital stack that makes a compelling investment for a private investor. Those things are fun. Like it's it's challenging. You know, we have a full we have a full time grant writer who is going after everything to kind of de-risk our investments, but it's it's more rewarding because of the the projects that we're doing and the change in which we wanna see. So it, it takes a little longer, it's more challenging, but it's more rewarding of a process. And when we have a very clear social impact filter and lens, it makes it easier to say no to those maybe higher rate of return investments.
1: Yeah, it's actually really interesting to hear you so that Tim and I, both as investors, we we talk about this a lot about knowing your lanes and sort of having frameworks to know how to get through there. I mean, our inboxes are flooded with, with deals, you know, same as you, maybe ours on the, a little bit of the technology side, mm. knowing how to get to a no, knowing how to pass on something is almost the hardest thing. Because mm. as an investor, you, you know, you're this optimistic person, you could see yourself being a part of, of really any investment, yeah. but figuring out whether this is in the strike zone, whether this is something you're gonna go after, or if it's not the right thing. I think learning how to say no sometimes as an investor is one of the hardest things. Uh, very, but but I but I appreciate fun. you hearing your perspective on that.
0: It is hard, and it, and it doesn't come overnight because everything that I got sent earlier on looked like a a home run. It was like, oh, this is the <laughs> next Facebook, and so yeah, I guess I'll give you you know however much money. But like, it takes practice and reps, and you know having to understand what what is a what is for you, what's not for you. Like you said, what's in your lane, and so I think it just comes with with practice, man. Well,
2: and and what a benefit for you know, Nashville and for Coatesville to have your involvement. I think it's important to point out, like you've been doing this for what, seven plus years on the real estate investment side. So it's not just something that happened Mm -hmm. overnight at the end of your career. How did you balance in those outside of the field interests from an investment perspective while you were still playing?
0: Yeah, I got into real estate specifically just trying to get more cash flow, trying to diversify my streams of income. And when I started to really like it was when I got to be more hands on. So like, It would be February, March, that time of the year, right? This this time of the year where you know we're off, we're in the middle of the off season, and I would go in, you know, and and have meetings with real estate developers and investors, and you know, try to understand what this meant and kind of like show them a deal and say, hey, look, they're talking about an eight percent cap rate and you know twelve percent IR like kind of like, I understand conceptually what that means, but can I break break that down from how you see it? Why why does, why does is this a, a good deal or why is this a bad deal? And I started to get more hands-on with it, you know, the more and more my, my career uh, progressed. And so, you know, I really felt drawn to it because of, you know, I love real estate as an asset. It's a very tangible thing and you could use it as collateral. And there's so many ways to benefit your tax and savings. And so it's, it's, a, it's a great asset class, and i think a lot of athletes are drawn to it cuz it's it's pretty straightforward. It's very straightforward. You know, you can get comp- complex on on different types of real estate asset classes, but for the most part it's a great great investment. If you're looking at it from a social impact lens, you could do a lot of good things in in real estate. You could be very intentional about, you know, master planning communities and, and the types of, you know, in, uh real estate projects you you uh involve yourself in. So It's it's something that I had been doing for uh, several years and it's just been kind of evolving as I go with it.
1: What were some of the the biggest learnings you had as you got started in real estate or just started investing generally, right? I mean, as you said, it's harder and harder to know what to look at, it's harder to know what's gonna be right for you. Did you have any early missteps or mishaps in terms of the investments you made and, and what did you learn from those?
0: Yeah, I was writing too big a check size earlier on. One person put it to me, it was like, hey, if you had, you know, $250,000, would you invest that in one company or 10 companies? And I was like, oh, well, when you break it down like that, you know, the chances of that one company, you know, being a unicorn or, or getting your money back are very slim. In when especially when we talking about VC. So if you had right. 10 companies, seven of those are probably going to tank. You might break even on one or two. You might make two X. And then that one's going to be like your unicorn type of thing. So for me, I had to understand that I was putting, my check sizes were too big and I was betting on companies way too much as opposed to just spreading it out. Um, I'm using 250 as an example. I never invested 250 in one company, but like, (laughs) you know, um, but some guys are though, some guys are, and I was, you know, I was no different as opposed to taking that 250 and putting it in one company, I would spread it out and put it in 10 companies, right? And then I started getting into venture capital funds and, and they would do it for me. But now, you know, I understand that in hindsight, it's like, oh, you probably shouldn't have been doing that. You should have been diversifying more. And so and, and understanding that if you write a check into a company, be prepared to lose that money. If you can't stomach that and write that check to and lose that money, you should never write that check. So for me, you know, any any money I lost or, or made, I was Fully expecting to lose that money. When it if it did get lost, it was like, cool. But if it comes back, great. You know, so that's how I look at it.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important to to point out it's all part of like what's your portfolio strategy. And so Mm -hmm. not as much like the 250K number specifically, even you know, that's obviously a lot of money, but as as much as it is, you know, what percentage of your portfolio is allocated towards high-risk, you know, locked capital VC investments. And so Obviously for, for Jay and I, our LPs, the capital they've allocated is in that bucket, right? So that's what we're more focused on. But it is absolutely the right mindset, especially when you're just coming in and starting to get active in the space as you know, someone who's who's made a significant amount of money. To have that mindset and not go so overboard where all of a sudden you've just over allocated way too much capital.
1: And that's something that that's actually feedback that I've heard from from quite a few guys. Venture capital and angel investing is just one part of my portfolio. Right. So it seems like a very similar situation for you, where it's just one part of between real estate, between impact and then venture capital. It's, it's an important, I think, lesson to for you know young athletes who are thinking about becoming investors to really hone in
2: on right now. So. Let's quickly touch on some of those investments you've made. I read an article recently that listed that you were an investor in Beyond Meat, uh, Clean Fiber, which makes insulation from recycled corrugated cardboard, C Note, Macro. How did you source these companies? And you know, was this were these companies that came directly to you, or did you work with somebody to develop that deal flow and and make an
0: investment decision? When I started looking into impact investing and what the, what was that industry all about. I picked up a book it was called real impact and the author's name is morgan simon and i reached out to her on email and i wanted to kind of learn more about it i wanted her her insight on the industry and she responded and we actually met up a couple weeks later that was the beginning of a a business relationship as it relates to impact investing because she was an expert in it she understood the industry she invests other people's money And so she has been very influential, her and her team at Candy Group. They've been very influential at sourcing deals, betting deals, you know, understanding, hey, this is your return profile. This is your risk profile. The Bitwises of the world, the macros, you know, I found Seed Note um, from another contact. But just a big chunk of my impact portfolio is from, you know, Morgan Simon and her team. And they've they've helped me with that. And then um, I got to give credit. Uh, for the Beyond Meat deal to my wife, cause uh, she found that deal. She basically was t- she reached out to Ethan Brown, who's the CEO uh, at a time. It was probably two two and a half years ago now, wow. and was like, "Hey, I'm I'm cooking out. for the team, <laughs> you know. I'm cooking for the team, and I want to use your product. And can we get it in the Titan facility?" And she set that whole thing up, man. And you know, we had a, we had a brand ambassador deal where we got equity in return, you know, for our services. So now hats off to her, man. She she definitely found that deal and, and brought it home. Chris Ball's
2: been pretty involved with that company as
0: well. Yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. It's a great company. Man. Yeah, I
1: mean, that, that is a great example of how you leverage your platform and being an athlete provides that access. And then obviously, I guess they're excited about having you on board, both from the brand ambassador standpoint, but then also, you know, the other investors that that you bring in through your presence. When you think about meeting these companies, how do you think about, bringing your platform as an athlete to working with them or do you set that aside completely and you say hey i'm just looking at this deal as if i was any other investor coming off the street how do you how do you balance that side of you know your access as an athlete and then your interest in the
0: company so i, I would say it depends on what type of company it is there are certain value adds that athletes have generally speaking but more specifically when you start talking about food products. Or like performance enhancement products, not steroids, but like just headphones that have neurostimulation or maybe like an arm sleeve or, you know, just things like that where an athlete's voice weighs so much more heavy than anybody else. That's where I think you leverage your social capital way more than your financial capital. So say, mm-hmm. you know, that's where the brand deals come in, where it's like, I don't want to invest no money. I just want to have equity in the company. And you could double down, right? It could be a great company that's cash flow or has a great trajectory and you want to also invest. But I usually don't do that. There's other companies, however, where, you know, you may have a value add. You may get more of a, um, you know, you could leverage to get more of a favorable position with your stock and your, your equity because of who you are. But those deals could particularly be more financial investments. So I think it all depends on what type of company it is and what's your value add
1: yeah when you go through your diligence process of of looking at this opportunity as an investment right beyond me it's a good example there was a a very clear value you were a user of the product and you sort of understood the value the product had when you're doing your diligence what are the things that you're looking for in these companies that makes you feel like it's a good investment for you
0: first and foremost i i look at what type of company it is i look at it from a standpoint of saying okay was well, this going to be in that high risk bucket of saying you know what I believe in the mission statement, they're a startup, they got some good traction, but they could very well plop. So that, that's one bucket where it's like, is it values aligned? Do they have a good trajectory? Do they have, am I not the, I don't want to be, I don't ever want to be the first money in, right? So what does our cap table look like? Do they have a, other you know significant investors? And you know, what's their, what's their runway really? A lot of these companies, their burn rates are super high so they don't have a great runway. Um, so I also look at that. And I also I lean on you know Morgan and her team to help me analyze it. They'll give me these due diligence, you know, reports that go through different categories. And I also like that's like high risk. There's other companies or there's other investment opportunities that are like cash flow. So for me, like cash flow is 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 very important. but there's certain debt funds that I'm invested in and you know, multifamily you know, housing that I'm invested in. But I would say like the last year and a half, I've really been focused on real estate as an asset class. That's like mm-hmm. my day to day, you know, is, is, is mixed use, commercial multifamily real estate. And, you know, that's been like my bread and butter for like the last, I would say 18 months.
2: So we'll wrap up here. Just two last questions. Uh, the first one is what are you most excited about to come from an investment standpoint? You know, something you're working on right now, or that's in the pipeline,
0: My Coatesville Project in my hometown, you know, we're building a sports complex and an event center um, with an education facility as well adjacent to it. So, I mean, that's what I'm most excited about, to put something in the hometown where I'm from, which is an old steel town, doesn't have a lot of industry there. The economy has been kind of slumping. So, like, to put something there that could spark the economic growth of that whole city in that region. I think for me is, is very exciting, it's very inspiring and and keeps me highly motivated. So that's what I'm most excited about. That's on the horizon. Awesome. I'm I'm sure Coatesville's pretty excited about it too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, and, and I, I went to school in Pittsburgh. And so and, you know, you drive through center Pennsylvania and, and you you see towns just like that that used to have industry, you know, even 40 years ago. And yep. now there's not a lot of opportunity. And and uh, you know, it's it's great that you've seen that and you've seized on it, but but also that there's a, a positive impact to it. Uh, look, everything that you've shared so far has been really great advice, uh, both for current and retired players. But maybe we'd like to end on some some parting words or parting words of advice that you'd have now. You know, being on the other side, what is some advice you'd offer to, to your fellow players about how they should prepare to be on this side of the, of, of the you know, Man, retirement? You know, all
0: you got to do is play in that Marshawn Lynch clip. That's, that's the, that, that encapsulates take care everything of your that I could say right that now. That was incredible, I, I, right? Oh, my God. Take care of your body, save your chicken. Oh, the other thing. I mean, it's just, it's really, that's what it is, is make sure that you have enough money to to live on this side. That's the clip, bro.
1: It was uh, it was take care of your body, take care of your mind, and take care and of your, your chicken. Chickens. Yeah,
0: yeah chickens. exactly. And I would add on to that, you know, take advantage of your network. You could be in a room with anybody you want, but it's all about what you do when you get in that room. If you take advantage of your network while you're playing in whatever city you're in and you just start to collect and create a Rolodex of people, you never know when you're going to need somebody. And you never know where somebody's going to be at five to ten years from now. So to have a robust elite network is so beneficial in so many ways. That's one thing I wish I would have did a little bit better but that guys can take full advantage of while they're playing.
2: Well, look, if if you're going to have to deal with people, you know, asking about your outlook on a current season or, you know, a lot of the inbounds you get, you might as well take advantage of it anyway, right? And really maximize that access that you get.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
2: Well, Derek, thank you so much. This has been a great time with you. It's been really insightful. We appreciate you coming on the game plan.
0: Yeah, I appreciate y'all having me.
1: Hey everyone, this is Jacob Kapoor. So at the end of every episode, Tim and I do what we call our weekly partner meeting. This is an opportunity for us to share some of our key takeaways on the company or fund that you just heard about, and offer some perspectives on the challenges that we see this company face. This is a look into the mindset of two early stage VC investors, and we hope you enjoy. All right Tim, so that was a really great and interesting conversation that we just had with former NFL pro, Derek Morgan. What were some of your
2: key takeaways? Well, I was just really blown away by the maturity shows in leaving football behind. Something that had been such a key part of his identity. He talked as if he had retired 10 years ago. And I think a key part of that is he had started investing and diversifying his portfolio, you know, seven, eight years ago. So he's been actively doing this. But to just be so mature and set in that way is, is pretty remarkable, especially with how much football and the game has been a part of his life. He really perked up when we started talking about those three pillars of competition, routine, and team. And it was interesting because he came to realize like, oh, he's actually been able to fill those pillars now post-career by surrounding himself with a great team on the investment side. You know, he still wakes up every day, has a strong routine that involves both physical fitness, but then also getting into the office, doing the work. And he loves what he does because it's very competitive. And so he thinks he can win. And so to have that too, I think really seals it for him in terms of having a complete picture of life after football. Jay, what did you find most interesting?
1: Yeah, I think the number one thing that really stuck out to me was how early he started thinking about diversification in his portfolio. Uh, and, you know, he you heard him sort of say that that was a journey of discovery for him as well. He was allocating too much into a single asset class, especially into venture capital and sort of risky uh, early stage companies. But the fact that he recognized that, looked at other opportunities in real estate, understood the tax abatements that he could have from impact investing, looking holistically at where his money goes, that was one of the most interesting things for me to hear. And the reason it's interesting is because I think, you know, what's in the zeitgeist, what's in sort of the the social sphere is venture capital, is technology. It's what guys are talking about in the locker room. It's what they're reading about on, you know, Forbes and TechCrunch. But it really shouldn't be that large a percentage of your portfolio. You heard Derek explain actually really clearly the power law. Right? He said, if there's 10 investments, six to seven go under, three return flat, and one becomes a winner. I mean, that's, that's effectively as simply as you can explain the power law. He nailed it. And that's exactly why you don't want a lot of these, especially recently retired athletes who have a lot of their disposable income, they haven't maybe set it aside yet, put all of their capital into illiquid investments that are going to take five to seven years to return. So, I'm really happy that he's figured that out. And I think to your point, the reason he's figured that out is because he started investing and getting involved in asset classes like real estate back when he was
2: still playing. Yeah, and it's so clear he knows what he stands for. Yes, like on his portfolio strategy, absolutely. But just that true sense of self, I mean, he's written about it. You mentioned the piece in the Players' Tribune where he really came to terms with the fact that football didn't have to be his identity anymore. And that sounds maybe simple in, in theory, but to be able to separate yourself, like he said, from something that had been the core of who you were for 30 years and still the reason why a lot of people come up to you or engage with you is really special. And I think that's what's liberated him to be able to do the investing that he's doing. I also think the focus that he has from an investment standpoint to be doing these Opportunity Zones is fantastic because of who he is and where he comes from. The fact that he's focused on Coatesville and Nashville as some initial markets to be standing up these funds is is great because those are true to his identity, right? He spent his whole career in, in Tennessee. He grew up in Coatesville. There's a much greater impact that can happen through the Opportunity Zone funds versus just like the charity work that he could do there otherwise, or as he said, you know, doing football camps or whatnot. So to be able to combine social good with the investment piece is really compelling and it takes a person like Derek to be able to be successful at it.
1: I think he talked about it really well where he had to find something that he was really passionate about. And he mentioned, you know, for him, he said it was a couple of months, which I commend him for most guys. It's, it's quite right. a few <laughs> years, right? But there was a couple of months where he wasn't really sure uh, which direction he wanted to do. And I think he mentioned that he had seeds in sort of a lot of different gardens, and he wasn't really sure where he wanted to dedicate his time. Finding something that he has a personal affinity and passion for makes waking up every day easier, right? It makes finding those three pillars that that you talked about a lot easier when it's directed at something that you're passionate about. He could go be an investor. I mean, he's a smart guy. He's figured out a lot of this stuff on his own. He could go be an investor in basically any asset class if he wanted, but he's found something that really speaks to him and makes it exciting for him to go to work every day.
2: Yeah, and to that end, he's he's put in the work, right? So you, it's one thing just to be passionate about something, but to actually put in the work, you know, he did continuing education, got his MBA, he surrounded himself by the right people. So it's not just that he's excited about it, but he's actually made sure that he's gotten smart about it and he knows what he's doing.
1: Yeah, I think the challenge that I sometimes see with early investors, and it seems like he's starting to avoid it too, is maybe recognizing what your value becomes as an athlete into those platforms. And I think he's recognized it, and that's something that I think, you know he would, he'll probably continue to spend time on is bifurcating the investments where he has a lot of value as an athlete, and then the investments where he has a lot of value with his capital. You know, if there's sort of any challenge to think about, it's very easy to get split focus. Um, it seems like he's got a good handle on it, right? With with Beyond Meat or with some of these opportunities, he realized that this is a lifestyle he lives and he can sort of speak to it as an athlete. And then maybe with with the real estate investments, it's his capital, but then, you know, also also his name that he brings to it. As an athlete turned investor, it's a fine line to walk. But I think, you know, I commend him for walking it the right way.
2: Well, I think that's a great way to wrap up this week's partner meeting. Jay, thanks for joining me. I'll see you next week. All right, and that's it for this week's episode of The Game Plan with Jay Kapoor and Tim Cott. As always, thanks so much for listening. We really enjoyed having Derek Morgan on the show today. It was incredible to hear about his impact investing. Special thanks to Betaworks for hosting us at their podcast lab. Hey, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at The Game Plan Show or leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We'll see you next week on The Game Plan.